Welcome to Check the Pantry, coming to you from the KBBI studios in beautiful downtown Homer, Alaska. Each week, we consider one ingredient in many contexts. Today, we're talking about beef tenderloin. My name is Jeff Lockwood. My guest for this show is AJ's head chef, John Brown, and it's time to Check the Pantry. Tenderloin is the culinary name for the psoas major muscle, which is found not only on the cow, tucked on the inside of the spine underneath the strip and the sirloin, but on every vertebrate animal, except for fish. It connects the spine to the upper thigh and is one of the complex of muscles known as the hip flexors. In humans, it gets quite a bit of work, but a cow has very little range of motion at the hip, so the muscle is mainly a stabilizer that gets little use. As a result, it is the tenderest muscle on the animal. Top quality tenderloin is so soft it barely needs a knife at all. And in the West, and especially in the U.S., tenderness is seen as the most important quality in beef. And so tenderloin fetches the highest price per pound of all the cuts. What is tenderness? The beef industry has an official test for it, the Warner Bratzler Shear Force Test. It measures the amount of force required to drive a standardized steel knife through a half-inch piece of cooked meat. Cuts from the tenderloin hover around 5.7 pounds of force. The next tender cut, the top blade or flat iron cut from the shoulder, clocks in around 6.7 pounds of force. And the other common steakhouse cuts, the New York strip, the ribeye, and the top sirloin hover in the 7 to 8 pound range. Steaks from the chuck and round are 9 pounds and beyond on the WBSF scale. The precise values vary across breeds and depend on things like the age of the cow and the method and length of the aging, but every time, the tenderloin is the tenderest. Tenderness is most importantly a factor of the length and diameter of muscle fibers and the amount of connective tissue within a muscle. Look at a fillet steak and you'll see that the individual fibers of the muscle, while long, are also very thin, and the only substantial connective tissue wraps the entirety of the muscle and not individual packets of fibers. Contrast that with the flat cut of the brisket. There the individual fibers are extremely thick, almost ropey, and fibers are packed in bundles and wrapped in layers of connective tissue that will fight the tooth until they are melted away through long cooking into gelatin. It's the difference between cashmere yarn and the bowline of the Tustamina. Tenderloin is the great piece of beef for those who like it so rare it's pretty much raw. The intramuscular fat that makes ribeye and strip steaks so silky can frankly be a tad on the gummy side below medium rare, and I say this as a lover of barely warmed meat. Tenderloin is the classic cut for the raw preparations carpaccio and tartare for precisely this reason. It yields almost no matter the temperature. All that giving texture comes at a cost, though, and that is that the tenderloin is not a very flavorful cut of beef. But what a bad cook might be annoyed by, a good one sees as opportunity. Its mildness makes it a good backdrop for other flavors, especially rich, fatty, mouth-filling sauces that would fight to compete with more assertive steaks. 
One of the most outrageous dishes of classic French haute cuisine is Tornado's Rossini, a thick cut of filet sitting on a butter-toasted crouton and topped with seared foie gras, drenched in demi-gloss enriched with Madeira, and finally, showered with shaved black truffles. You'd never get through that if it was a ribeye. If you did, it would take two days to digest. But surrounding a quiet, polite filet, all those fireworks make a little bit of sense. You know, I've worked in a bunch of restaurants where the 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 chef always gets mad about the tenderloin because you you know they always complain, oh, there's no flavor, no flavor. But man, it, it's so good as a backdrop for other stuff. Yeah, it's definitely mild, but uh, you know, it lends itself to the sauces really nicely. And you know, most of the time, it's a it, in in restaurants, it's almost always a steak. Not many places really do whole roasted fillets, but at home, you know, especially around the holidays and this time of year, like it is the classic elegant roast. How do you like to roast your fillet? Do you start hot? Do you start, do you start with a low oven or a hot oven? Well, you know, recently I've been going to towards the lower end, you know, the reverse here where you warm it up gently and at the end brown the outside because it just with a, with the size of a, a tenderloin, you know, uh, as opposed to like a prime rib or something like that, it's, it's much smaller. And so if you get enough heat really fast to get that outside, start cooking you might end up with you know medium well outside and barely medium rare you know center yeah because of the size of it and it, it also i always feel like because I, I i switched to, to doing um that reverse sear thing for a lot of my roasts for a very similar reason and also the other thing that happens is you don't wind up with so much uh gray on the outside right you know it's like a lot more evenly cooked through and through it's funny that that i, that I happen to be reading on food and cooking which is a really classic food science book i think i've talked about it before a lot of us, you know, I, I certainly believe this when I was young, had the, the whole, uh, oh, you got you to gotta start ever, you got to start your meat hot to sear in the juices. Right. And it, seal it in there. Yeah. Yeah. Like somehow, you know, you're making some impenetrable membrane on the outside <laughs> of the crust. And like, and once you think about it, you realize it's kind of totally ridiculous. But this whole thing was, was, was the, the terrible idea of this German guy named Liebig. It's been the standard forever now. It's yeah. Too. Yeah. Since uh, I believe it, like the mid 19th century was when this Liebig guy came up with this theory and, and he's, it's very elaborate, you know, and it, it's, it's actually not nutritious to, unless you, you cook meat really hot at the beginning because all of the nutritive juices leave it. And it like, there's no basis for this at all. And it, and it, it was debunked almost at the time that he made it, but it's, it, it achieved this currency, but it turns out that Harold McGee, the guy that wrote on food and cooking says all of the English cookbooks before this guy came along, basically at, told you to reverse sear your roast. They all said, start away from the fire, start in the cold spot in the oven let your meat gradually come up to temperature. And then when it's at the temperature that you want, only then put it by the fire. And then this guy came along and persuaded everybody with his superior Germanic powers of perception <laughs> or whatever, you know, that, that you had to start with a hot oven. And all the cookbook writers completely changed their tune. Even like the great ones, even Escoffier was saying this kind of nonsense. Yeah. That's the way I've always seen it. You know, that's, yeah. that's the way I was originally taught. Yeah. Only now are we beginning to... Uh, to, to finally come around to the idea that you should really start in a cold oven. 200 degrees? Yeah, 225, I've seen somewhere. 
as low as you can get it to get started. Basically, yeah, it's kind of hard. It can be hard to do in home ovens because we don't necessarily um, go that low easily. Right. But as low as you can go for sure. And the other advantage to, of it I've found since I started doing it is that it dries out the outside. You know, if you put right, if and you put a wet roast into a hot oven, definitely drier. You're going to give you a better sear every time. Yeah, know? it's got to spend a lot of energy. Um, Find that moisture. Yeah, and, and the other advantage of it too is you don't have to rest so long. Right. Um, after you after you actually cook it. In fact, most of the ways that I do it, that I learned how to do it, were to pull the roast out of the oven when it's actually at the temp that you want, and it's not going to rise very much because you know there's not like a temperature differential. Yeah. And you pull it out, and then you heat your oven up to blast it at whatever the hottest you can get is. And while it's sitting there, then it rests. So, you know, it takes, what, 10, 15 minutes for, your, right. for the, uh, the temp to come up. And then you just throw it in the oven. Yeah, and, 20 on the big, you know, yeah, whole prime rib. Yeah, whole prime rib. It can take a while. And then you throw it in, but then it's already rested. So all you have to do is sear it. And it's like the most amazing thing ever. And you end up with a, probably, a, I think it's more even throughout. You don't have as much of the gray on the outside as you, as you would on a traditional sear. Yeah, it's, it's much more evenly cooked. And the other advantage of it, too, is um, if you want to use like a rub or something, uh, spice rubs in a hot oven, if you put, a, if you put a, like a really heavy, complex spice rub in a hot oven, it yeah. burns. Yeah, something that might have some sugar in there or whatever. You can go kind of nuts with the rub and not worry about it getting black and charred right. because it's not spending very much time at a high temperature. <laughs> the classic sort of fancy uh, buffet dish of whole roasted tenderloin is beef wellington. And you and I were yeah. talking about it, and we both kind of were like, you know, for for all the trouble, it's really, like, it's not that great of a dish. You know, there's a lot of richness in there, which is cool. You know, the pate with the... It is a lot of trouble. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to get right, you know? It's yeah. easy It's easy for, for it to be either too soggy or your pastry's undercooked or yeah. your beef is overcooked. So... I am personally, if you if you're if you're looking for mushrooms and uh, and beef tenderloin, which is like probably the most classic flavor combination beef of and all, mushrooms. It's great. you know, I think that I think you should take it easy on yourself and not worry about Wellington. <laughs> I think you should make stroganoff. And you're probably wondering about that because one of the sadder falls from culinary grace that that we've seen is the thing that we call stroganoff today, because for most of us, it's either just a gray sort of mess of ground beef in a bland sauce, or it's a stew with random chunks of meat and it's finished off with sour cream and mushrooms. But in its original version, it's a tart little pan sauce that covers strips of filet. Well, the old and the new versions agree that stroganoff should be served with noodles. And you don't have to make your noodles from scratch because dried egg noodles are great. But it's fun now and then to start at the beginning. So I got out the flour and the eggs. Classic accompaniment to beef stroganoff. It's traditionally served over buttered egg noodles. I'm not going to say pasta. We're not going to make pasta right now. We're going to make noodles. And the reason I'm saying that is because I don't want to get into a million arguments with Italian people about how pasta is made. So we're not making pasta. We're making noodles. This is one of those things where a kitchen scale is your best friend because there's a very simple ratio that will always make good noodles. Noodles, not pasta, noodles. 100 grams of flour to one egg. And for every three eggs, one egg yolk. And it works out actually really well, that ratio, because 300 grams of flour plus three whole eggs plus an egg yolk works out to about 500 grams, which is just about a pound of pasta, which is a pretty terrific amount of pasta for four people. 
Now, one of the things you get a big argument with people about when you're making pasta is exactly what kind of flour to use. I'm just gonna tell you, all-purpose flour is fine. I make a lot of bread, I make a lot of pastry, so I usually pretty much always have bread flour and pastry flour on hand. So I sort of make a my own blend of all-purpose flour. It's not because I'm like super anal about it, it's just because I happen to have these two things around. Because I have it, that's how I do it. It turns out that each one has characteristics that are useful for pasta. Good noodles are strong. You can roll them out. You can tug on them. They're not going to break. You know, they're not fragile. They're not soft. They're not mushy. They have some bite to them, but they're not chewy. You don't want a flour that's too soft. You know, you don't want it to all be pastry flour because then you won't develop enough gluten to develop a solid strength to the pasta. But you also don't want a flour that's so high in gluten, by the time you get to the end of the process of making the noodles, your gluten is going to be so developed and there's going to be so much of it that you're going to wind up with chewy noodles. So that's why all-purpose flour is a good solution. And it's also why, since I have pastry flour and I have bread flour, I just say, I'm going to make a mix. And it turns out that a mix that I'm pretty happy with is two-thirds pastry flour to one-third bread flour. And that's what I'm going to measure on my handy kitchen scale, which if you don't have a kitchen scale, you really should. I've got 300 grams of my made up all-purpose flour and I pile it on my countertop. I'm making a well and I'm gonna put the eggs inside this well. I'm gonna take, I have a bench scraper here and I'm gonna gradually work in the eggs this way. I'm gonna go ahead and mix up the eggs a little bit. There's probably some Italian grandmother who's furious that I'm mixing the eggs before I put them into the pasta. And there's probably another one who's like, of course, that's how you do it. Now, pasta, excuse me, noodles are one of the few things that you don't salt when you're making them. Some people, there are recipes that do call for salt. The vast majority of them seem not to. The reason, again, is salt speeds up the development of gluten. And I'm going to say this now before I start, because once I get going, I'll probably lose track of what I'm about to say. At the end of this part of the process, you're probably going to think that it's too dry. You're going to be like, it's a little weird and you might be tempted to add more water. Now, if it won't come together, if you can't get it to form a cohesive mass, then yes, add a little, a little bit of water. But if it's mostly together and there's just like some, a little flaking around the outside, you're going to be okay. One thing that we're going to do is we're going to rest this for at least an hour, preferably a little more, you know, ideally overnight. And what that's going to allow the, the flour to do is to fully hydrate. And you'll come back to a dough that started out maybe a little dry and a little feeling like it might be hard to work. And over time, A, the gluten will relax a little. And the other thing that'll happen is the flour will hydrate more fully. So I am just trying to keep my egg mixture contained and just chop, chop, chopping bits of flour. Gradually working from the outside in. It'll want to run on you, but that's okay. Just keep going. Try to keep it contained. Now it's starting to cohere. And I'm trying at this stage, I'm not working it with my hands at all. I'm just using the bench scraper. I'm trying to cut the wet pieces of the egg into the flour. And as you do it, it, you start to get little masses and then they'll gradually aggregate into a larger mass. 
And this cutting action helps minimize the amount of gluten that you're developing at this stage. I've got a bunch of little, they almost look like curds. And now is when I start to begin to knead them a little bit. And the kneading is what forms them into a single homogenous mass. And now I've got it into kind of a loose ball. So I'm gonna finish by giving it just a minute or so. So what I've got now is varying shades of, of a little bit darker yellow and then sort of white on the outside and the whites where it feels a little dry. And this is what I'm talking about where it's easy, especially if you've worked with bread dough where it's really homogenous. It's easy to sort of go, oh no, it's too, it's too dry. I need to add some water. You don't. It's a lot drier than bread dough and it's better to air on the side of slightly too dry than slightly too wet with pasta dough, I find, excuse me, with noodle dough, because then when you go to roll it out, it's not sticky and you're not tempted to add a bunch more flour to make it less sticky. And if it is slightly tacky, that you can deal with with just a little dusting of flour. You gotta use flour anyway, but. So I have a nice little roughly one pound ball of dough here, and I am going to wrap this and stick it in the refrigerator for at least a couple of hours. So my pasta dough, excuse me, my noodle dough has been resting in the fridge for two to three hours now and I've taken it out. It's nice and pliable. It's nice and the surface is very, very slightly tacky. And now I put it on my countertop and I'm ready to roll it out. And this is a two-stage process. You can, you can do it entirely with a rolling pin. I'm going to roll it out to begin with, with a rolling pin, but I'm going to use a pasta machine. And I happen to have one that goes on a stand mixer, although you can certainly use the clamp-on countertop styles as well. So first thing I'm going to do is divide my pasta into eight balls. So first thing I do is I roll out a little chunk. And I don't worry about shaping because there's a process that we're gonna get to in a second that will help make it square. Right now it's sort of, it's vaguely square, but I'm gonna run it through the first setting, the widest setting on my pasta machine. So what I do is I just ran it through the widest setting three times and then I laid it out and I folded it twice inwards. And this is called laminating. What this does is A, it helps shape the pasta. So it's gone from kind of an oblong shape to now it's a pretty, almost a perfect rectangle. The other thing that it does is it creates layers inside the pasta that align the gluten in the correct direction. Down the line, the pasta is better. You get a better texture if you do this. And the other thing that they often say, some people don't say to do this, but many people do, run your dough through several times on the wide setting. I usually go three and then several times on the next setting. And then once you begin to get thinner, then you can just run your dough through once. What we're doing with the rolling out process is we're kneading the dough and we're lining the gluten in strands so that we get the correct texture of the pasta. Pasta is, is it's so, excuse me, noodles are so simple that very small details can make a difference. So I'm gonna run this through the widest setting. I've just laminated my dough. I'm gonna run it through the widest setting three times. Then I'm gonna run it through the next setting three times. And then I'm gonna go through the setting after that once. 
And then I think I'll take this one to four. So this will go to the number four. And now I have about an 18 inch strip that's about two inches wide. And that's pasta. Excuse me, noodles. All right, now it's time for the main event, which is cooking a filet steak. And John Brown, I am wondering if you could have your filet anyway. How would you like it? I'd like to. I'd like an poivre filet. Ooh, nice. Pepper crusted. Uh huh. I like to do mine with a, a light Dijon rub all the way around it, not too much, so that uh, your crust doesn't come off when you go to sear it. Coarse ground black pepper on both sides. Nice sear. Maybe roast it, finish in the oven to medium rare, and then do a nice pan sauce. Uh, anything you want in there. Maybe some shallots, garlic. Uh, maybe even a little more mustard. Uh, sometimes blue cheese. Maybe not. Maybe beef stock. Beauty. I'm assuming that if you're doing it uh, au poivre, you're going to want to do it in a pan because it, yeah, absolutely. it'd be kind of hard to do on a grill, wouldn't yeah, it? that's not going to work for you. Honestly, I have a confession to make about about grilled steak in general. Like, I, I think it's great on, on charcoal, but I'm kind of anti-gas grill. <laughs> I much prefer it in a pan. And do you like uh, do you like cast iron or do you have another pan preference? I prefer cast iron. So you like your, you like your filets medium rare? Uh, absolutely. We'll talk about this a little bit because up, coming up next, your sous chef, Josh, is going to cook us a steak uh, in, the next, in the next piece. But I find that, that filet is one of the ones where you can really go full rare. You like, absolutely can. Yeah. I'm a believer of uh, not every steak has to be that full rare. You know, when you get the cuts that are like a ribeye that have more fat, you yeah. need to get it up to a temperature that that fat gets softened enough that, you know, it's really nice and buttery. You can enjoy it. You get too rare on a prime rib, in, in my opinion. It's just, you know, it's just not as good. Yeah, it's always a little chewy. You know, yeah. there's like a slight gumminess yeah. if it's if it's just too too rare on a prime rib. And let's, uh, I'm, I'm a big believer that there's two instruments anybody who's even remotely interested in cooking should have. One is a scale. And the other is a thermometer. Thermometer, often overlooked in the home kitchen. Yeah, and it, and it's honestly like it makes you it, it's so much easier because people argue all day long about you know doneness and doneness, but if you're one twenty five, you're rare. Yeah, and you know it. You know. Yeah, and if you're one thirty one, so and they're so cheap. They are. Oh, they're they're <laughs> the outrageous. They're outrageously the cheap is, now. You know, uh, every kitchen you, you seem to go through, like you, you, you seem to find your, your granddad's old, big old thermometer, and it just says like beef, chicken, <laughs> pork, whatever. It's and it's always huge, like one sixty five. It's just huge. <laughs> <laughs> Those things are no good. Yeah, no, you got to get you got to get with the times because the the new instant read, the digital thermometers, they're just awesome and they're super precise. So what? Uh, so one twenty five is pretty much rare. Yeah, and then next up is. Right about 130 is where you start hitting medium rare. Right. And then medium is? Uh, 135. 135-ish. Medium yeah. well. Medium 135, 140. Uh-huh. And then 145-ish is medium well and yeah. anything over that. Actually, if I'm cooking a steak, I'll pull like a medium well at 140 or uh -huh. a medium at 130 because it's going to come up five degrees on you. Right. Unless you sous vide. Yeah. And so go ahead and, <laughs> and actually, even with a sous vide, it'll, it'll come up a degree or two. Will it? Not, not, not quite five. Yeah. Really? Huh. You know, that was one of the messes they taught us actually. But you do have to set your sous vide up a little bit over your, your the temp that you're going for. Oh, to get to get a uh, to get a like a seat like a cushion or something. Yeah. 
at, at the restaurant now, though, you you pretty much always cook your fillets on just from mostly from on the raw. grill. Unless I'm doing some kind of special, I want to impart some nice flavors or something like that. You know. And what do you what do you uh, find to, are the considerations when uh, when you are doing it sous vide? Like, what do you have to? Don't go too long. Yeah. You know, it's 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 there's not a lot of fat in a in a tenderloin. You can dry it out. You know, I just go till just it's done. Forty five minutes, hour at the most. You know, at what temp? Uh, one thirty one point five is what we do at the restaurant. But at home, you could probably go if you know you wanted a, a really nice, rare. You could go one twenty five. Yeah, and and just don't don't cook it for too long. No, Mm-mm. does it, it? It'll get mushy, won't it? It will. First, it'll get dry. You know, that's the first thing that's going to happen. And then it's going to start turning into a more pot roast kind of consistency. Where it just, it'll fall <laughs> apart. That'll, that'll take a while. That'll take a while. That, that just know. sounds really unappealing. Probably past eight hours or something like that. It it's funny, though. I'm glad, I'm glad you mentioned pot roast, actually, because I always... I feel bad bringing it up because it's always one of those, you know, people get made fun of for, for eat one, their steaks well done, you know, and I, my dad, that was how he ate his all the time. And actually when I started, when like, I was growing up, that's how we got them cooked for us. So yeah. That's what we ate. Yeah. When I started, I thought I was being pretty dangerous because, you know, I, I started getting my medium well and I was like, Hey, this is <laughs> a, a lot better, thing. you know, come on, dad, you're nuts. And then eventually I was converted. I kind of feel like tenderloin is one of the ones where you can be a little bit, you know, put your foot down. Cause I mean, a well-done tenderloin is like, you might as well get a pot roast, Yeah, you know, at that point and pot roasts are awesome. I mean, medium's going to be fairly dry. You know? Yeah. There's just no fat. You know, it's, it's one thing with a, ri- with a ribeye, which is what, that was the only steak my dad would ever eat. Obviously with a ribeye, they're so fatty that even when they're cooked to 165 and beyond, there's still like a little bit of, you know, lubrication there. Yeah. Yeah, so they can they can kind of they can kind of take it, but man, so you're kind of wasting your money there, I think. Yeah, yeah. and it's like an expensive like that. You should maybe it's an expensive cut, you know. And why not just eat a pot roast at that point? Because <laughs> pot roast is awesome. You it's know? great. I love pot you get roast. The carrots too, you know, onions. <laughs> <laughs> anytime, anytime you get carrots, you're you're golden. <laughs> but let's talk about let's get a professional on the on the radio <laughs> cooking a steak. So older stroganoff recipes would cut their beef into strips and then simmer them in the sauce. And we'll actually talk a little bit about poaching because you were telling me about uh, you, you used to do. Yeah, you used to do like a, a poached tenderloin, which is really interesting to me. So we'll talk about that a little bit. It's a perfectly good way to do it, but you do lose something a lot of us love dearly, which is a great crust. So in this version of stroganoff, we're using a grilled piece of filet and John's sous chef at AJ's, Josh Prentice takes us all the way through the cooking process, starting with breaking down a whole tenderloin. Well, I'm getting started on this filet here. What I like to do first after getting it opened is uh, find this little line of sinew and fat, the chain, yeah, you go ahead and find the chain on the filet. And then you just wanna like start peeling it back up with your hand until you can get to the, towards the end part. The filet is usually tender enough that you can pull it off without any hassle. Then you just peel back this big fat strap that's on it and you find where your meat line is. And then after you get that top part uncovered, go back to the bottom and you just trim. It's just kind of like where... Isn't that where it attaches to the rib? Yeah. So yeah, you just want to trim off those, you know, stubby parts, make it nice and even, all conform together and just like barely expose the marbling when you're slicing those pieces off. And then you just, you know, same process, take your fingers, run back over the rest of the chain that was still attached to it, and just peel it all off. Still got a little bit of chain here at the bottom. You can just go ahead and take your fillet knife or butcher knife, just remove that completely and set that aside for grind. And then, you know, you can use the fat, you know, reduce it down, cook it with it, make a stock, whatever. 
So now that we have mostly cleaned up filet here, we're just gonna go back to the bottom butt part of the steak. And you just wanna peel back that sinew line that's hiding in between the two meat crevices. Just take your filet knife, run back against the line of it there, get up under it, and just work your way back up towards the top of the filet. And now, perfect, it's all exposed. Now what we do for this last little tail part here, we go ahead and just doctor that up and we turn it into medallions for specials or making for country fried steak. Just pound it out. Then after you've made your last medallion, you should be basically looking at, for the most part, a whole tenderloin that you can butcher up into steaks at this point. Start at the end here, move up till about eight ounces worth, smooth cut all the way down. Just repeat the process. As the steak thickens up, you know, you make your cuts smaller depending on how big of a filet you have. And on average, you should be able to get about, I wanna say about 10 to 12 filets out of one loin, depending on how big it is. If it's a small one, you get about, you know, eight. And we're just gonna take a quick look around, make sure there's no extra parts that we forgot to trim earlier. There's a little bit on the bottom. Just go ahead and move that all the way now. So we just take our little filet, add a tiny bit of olive oil, get it nice and seasoned up with it and just add a little bit of salt and pepper to it. I like to find the, the hottest part of my grill whenever starting any of my steaks, so that way it has the nicest, prettiest sears, sear marks on its grill. Second, clean this up, make it nice and prestigious. Go ahead, find my hot spot, and just let that hit on there. About, I usually do about four minutes on each side, giving it a, a full flip, and then changing it around depending on how my grill marks are lined up. But on average for a mid-rare, usually takes about eight minutes, nine minutes. What's your favorite temp for a filet? Oh, blue. Blue filet is my favorite. I really like to take it in a cast iron pan with a little bit of olive oil in it. Same, same seasoning, salt, pepper but the cast iron gives it a nice, beautiful, crusty sear that is just, you know, can't be beat. So it's been going for about four minutes now. A nice, perfect sear on that front side. Now that it's got a, you know, a fairly good sear on one side after the bottom sears up, the next sear I have to do when I flip it over again will take about half as much time to put the same coloration on it, but it also, the meat will cook up faster now that it's, you know, nice and seared. Come back over here to the steak we got on the grill. Have that another flip. Line up the grill marks so that way they make nice either squares or diamonds. Do you? Uh, how do you? How do you test your temp on your steak? Uh, besides uh, the temperature gauge, I usually go with the old you know finger trick adage. What's the, what is the finger? All right. Well, open open hand entirely. It's so you put your you know index finger for whatever hand you're not using at the time. Take your other hand, extend it out, and then you just lightly poke at the little bit of muscle underneath your thumb area right as it's coming into your palm. And as your hand's completely opened, it's, uh, it's got a softer texture. That's about what a rare would feel like. And if you wanted to feel any of the other temperatures, you just put your other fingers to your thumb, like uh, pointer finger and thumb together. The texture of that is about a mid-rare. Uh, the middle finger, that's about a medium. Ring is about a midwell. And then when, when you push your uh, pinky and thumb together, 
the tight feel that your thumb has is about the same texture as a well done steak has. I did diamonds this time, yeah. And about two more minutes and pull it off the grill, let it rest for about four more minutes and it should be a perfect mid-rare. What do you, uh, what's the purpose of resting? Uh, lets the meat relax and let the juices, you know, come out of the steak, you know. Lets its uh, actual temperature be there. You can pull a steak off the grill and it's supposed to be uh, mid-rare and when you serve it, it's actually more, you know, blue rare than anything. Go ahead and use my filet knife. Why not? Nice work, Josh. Thank you. Have a piece. Yeah, the hand trick is the old classic line cook technique for when you got, you know, 15 steaks on the grill and you're not going to sit around poking them all with a thermometer. Yeah. So let's talk about sauces for filet because filet really, to me, is like the great sauce piece of beef you know the beef steak that you want a sauce on like a ribeye doesn't really need a sauce no, you know want something though new york strip doesn't want it doesn't need a sauce but a filet filet wants a sauce and maybe the classic sauce that first comes to mind with a filet at least to me is bernays absolutely so can you walk us through uh making a bernays well for me you know a lot of people make it all together but i'll make a hollandaise you know basic egg yolks butter um some lemon juice salt and then on the side, I will do a light saute of shallots, add a little black pepper, and then put in some red wine vinegar and then some tarragon, and then reduce that down and thicken it. And then I'll hold the bernays on line and mix it together if I need it. And that way I can use the oh, you mix it for I mix it to order in a little cup. Oh, okay. Uh, it, it seems to break less like, that way. And then, Interesting. And then I can have hollandaise for some other sauce for another special Ooh, you know, if, if i wanted to that's smart do you uh do you make your hollandaise just uh whisking yeah double boiler whisking so. yeah, yeah 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 it's pretty straightforward to do it that way i, I like think it's consistency better than the you know the cuisinart or whatever the one advantage i think of doing uh any of the emulsified egg sauces by hand is that it, you can use cold butter and you get a little different consistency a little bit of, a little different texture and you'll see people in the restaurant especially whipping hollandaise and they're just wearing themselves out. You don't have to go that fast. You just have to keep it moving. Yeah. You know, it's a little more casual affair than some people make it look, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that, you know, because a lot of times people make hollandaise and they'll do it for like brunch or something when they have a bunch of people over and they're like, oh no, I got to do this at the last minute. You know, if you have a thermos or any kind of an insulated container and you warm that up with warm water, your hollandaise will hold forever. Yeah, that's how we've done it at restaurants. Yeah, you know? yeah. And, that's what, and it's funny because people are always like, how do I hold the hollandaise without breaking it? And you just get a thermos. So what else, uh, what other sauces do you like to use? I know, I know I've, I've eaten at AJ's and you guys do, you do like a, a blue cheese. I do like a blue cheese compound butter a lot. That's right. Yeah, it is. It's butter. Yeah. It's like butter and don't you do like whiskey or something in it? Uh, there's been a whiskey blue cheese sauce that uh, some of the guys like to do. I like, uh, I like another version of a hollandaise, the Maltese. Which one's that? It's the orange. Oh, okay, Traditionally, yeah. it's blood orange, but it's hard to get blood oranges here. So yeah. I just go, I think it's just as tasty with regular orange and orange zest in place of lemon is all it is. Right. You know, a little less tart, a little more sweet. Compound butters are, are, are people don't think of them, I, I don't think, a lot of times. Um, but they're, they're something, they're real simple to make. And so you can And you can roll them up into a log and keep them in your freezer. Yeah, and you can have that ready for, you and know. Slice off a couple of little bits. Like the classic, the, most, the two most famous ones are probably hotel butter which is parsley and lemon juice. Oh, okay, yeah. And then, uh, and then snail butter, which <laughs> doesn't actually contain snails. It was, it was the, the classic butter to use to cook escargot in, and it's shallots, garlic, 
lemon and parsley. So it's basically hotel butter with, with this other stuff in it. So many different things. Anything, you know. Lately, I've been doing red wine butter. Oh, nice. Reducing red wine with shallots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little rosemary and garlic. Does it come out kind of purplish? Very purple. Oh, that. And especially oh, okay. the shallots are even intensely purple in there. So it's nice if you chop up a little something green too, some parsley and put it in there. Nice colors. Yeah, any herbs. Really I mean, you can, you can just raid your herb garden yeah. in the summer and just go nuts. Anything. And I've got cilantro butter, chilies. Butter. Chili butter. I've seen miso butter, which haven't seems kind of interesting. I haven't tried it, but for I've... some sable fish, I bet. Ooh, <laughs> I'm gonna have to think about that now for Getting a little bit. That... <laughs> <laughs> filet so, mushrooms, uh, filet and bacon are like the most classic pairings. The bacon wrap filet, and I think they work really well because both mushrooms and bacon have have that umami thing going on, which is funny because filet for the fact that it's beef. It's really not that meaty tasting, you know? Yeah. And so it, it matches up really well with stuff that's more assertive. I know I've seen I've seen some ribeye dishes where people like put like cured sausages and stuff all over the ribeye. <laughs> and I'm just like, God, you know, how do you It's a lot. But on a on a fillet I could totally see it. Yeah. It's not a lot of fat, so Which isn't a bad thing, you know. Like not I feel like I feel like there's sort of a there's 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 a prejudice with a lot of people have where every ingredient has to be super flavorful. Yeah, it's like well, if everything's then it just too can, much, too complicated. Yeah, to overwhelm your mouth. Yeah, yeah. I, I like keeping simple. Yeah, I'm your ingredients. I'm totally the same way. So we've got noodles and we've got a steak, and now we just need to finish our stroganoff with a sauce, and we need some mushrooms to start with. And while wild mushrooms would be awesome, I'm a booster of the humble button mushroom, which get no love from cool foodies, but which, if you just treat them right, bring a lot of flavor to any dish. Interestingly, a lot of people assume that regular white buttons and creminis and portobellos are all different, but they're actually all the same species. There's a white and a brown variety. Portobellos are the same mushrooms at a mature stage. So these are regular white mushrooms. Button mushrooms don't really get the respect that I think they deserve. And a lot of the reason is that in their traditional sort of raw form, because they're cultivated, they do contain a lot of water. And so that kind of dilutes the flavor. So pretty much every time I buy mushrooms, the very first thing that I do is I fire up the oven and I roast my mushrooms. And the nice thing about doing it this way is that then you don't have to, it saves a lot of time when you go to cook them, when you go to use them in a dish. A, they saute a lot quicker because the water's all gone. B, they're a lot more flavorful if you want to just use them, you know, straight out of the fridge, cold in a salad or whatever. They're already, it's all pre-flavored for you. They're you can pull them out at different stages, you know, you can pull them out when they're just kind of well browned, but not like starting to shrivel and get crispy, or you can roast them all the way down to where they really don't look like much, but they taste like super intense and super roasted and uh, it, it really meaty. And for beef stroganoff, mushrooms are like one of the main garnishes and one of the main things that makes the dish. So I have a bowl of mushrooms. I am squirting them with some plain old canola oil, giving them a nice shot of salt and a nice shot of pepper and the other thing that i really like on mushrooms you don't have to put it but it's such a classic pairing is a little thyme. i toss my mushrooms in the oil make sure they've got a nice coating of oil dump them in a pan and i stick them in a 400 degree oven for eh, half hour 45 minutes ish i'll probably check them in a half hour and see where they're at. Okay, my beef is made. My pasta is made. Excuse me, my noodles are made. And the only thing that's left to do now 
is to assemble it all by making the sauce. So I got some chicken stock that's reducing and that's gonna be the base of my sauce. Now I've already roasted my mushrooms. So the mushrooms themselves are already nice and brown. This is gonna save me a ton of time right here. If you're starting from raw mushrooms, you really need to let them saute for a while. They're gonna take probably 10 minutes in the pan to get a nice crispy brown deep flavor. So I'm gonna start with them and then I'll add my onions in and then I'm gonna add, and then I'm gonna deglaze the pan with some vermouth. And then I'll add my chicken stock, mustard, a little Worcestershire, and then right at the end, after it's all said and done, just before I serve, I'm gonna add sour cream, which is like the defining feature of beef stroganoff. Now you can use creme fraiche too, and the advantage of creme fraiche is that it won't break. So you can actually add it earlier, you can reduce everything with the creme fraiche in it. Sour cream is like butter. You can't allow it to boil uh, or else it'll curdle. I'll add it with the pasta, in fact, because the heat's gonna be very low. I'll just stir it right in, right at the end, with some parsley, because parsley's good in this dish. Parsley's a great finishing herb because it just gives, gives everything like a little bright flavor. So I'm getting a nice glob of butter. And the foam has subsided. I'm just gonna let these mushrooms sit for just a minute just to crisp up nicely. And then I'll add my onions. These are diced. Yeah, these mushrooms are getting brown super, super fast. Keeping roasted mushrooms around, it just makes things fast. You know, you can just grab a handful of them, slice them up, chop them, throw them in, boom. You got awesome mushroom flavor. So I got my, uh, my mushrooms in half the pan. Now I'm gonna add my onions to the other half to get them started. A little salt on the onions. So the next thing that's gonna go in the pan is gonna be wine. And I try to keep a bottle of either vermouth or marsala around. Those are fortified wines. And they also have some additional aromatics. They have herbs added to them. But the big, the big advantage for cooking is that they're fortified. They have alcohol added to them. So they actually last longer in the refrigerator than a standard um, white wine will. It's especially handy if, if you don't drink alcohol. These are the kind of things they can sit around for a while in the fridge. Although I gotta say the best thing you can buy if you don't drink alcohol and you only keep a bottle of something around to cook with is Madeira. Because Madeira, when you open the bottle, nothing changes. For complicated reasons relating to how it's made, it's actually manufactured by essentially cooking and oxidizing the wine deliberately to simulate uh, long ocean voyages, which is how Madeira was originally uh, created. They literally put it in casks and sent it around the world. And so Madeira doesn't change after it's been opened. Not a sweet one because there's sweet and dry versions. So make sure you get a dry one, but it's really delicious stuff and it, and it makes awesome pan sauces for like anything. But today we're gonna be using vermouth. So now that I'm approaching, now I've cooked some of the water out, my mushrooms are starting to get nice and brown, so I've turned it up just a little bit. Now it's on pretty close to high. I'm letting the pan heat up a little bit because when I, when I dump my vermouth in there, I want it to start sizzling right away. Here goes with the vermouth. Maybe like half a cup. And I'm gonna let that reduce pretty far down. There's not gonna be a whole lot left of it. And now I'm adding my reduced concentrated chicken stock. 
And to that, I'm gonna add a nice big, probably a tablespoon of mustard. A little dash of Worcestershire, a little splash more of salt, some black pepper, and just because I like it, a little thyme. And I'm gonna let that cook just a little bit more to reduce my chicken stock even further because I want it to be a real thick. So once I add the sour cream, it'll bring it to just a beautiful, perfect, silky consistency. All right, my water is boiling. My pan sauce is hot. My beef is ready. I'm like three minutes away from being done. Four minutes, maybe. Plop the noodles right in. Make sure you stir them good because fresh noodles sometimes do have a tendency to stick together. Remember, I still haven't added my sour cream yet. I've got that ready to go. I've got my sour cream ready and I've got some parsley. It's always a good idea to taste your pasta. Fresh pasta, like I said, it doesn't take very long to cook. It's only been in there maybe, maybe two minutes and I'm transferring it now into the sauce. And I'm doing it straight out of the pot. I'm not draining it. What I'm doing is I'm, there's a lot of free starch now in this water. So that'll help thicken the sauce and help bind the sauce to the pasta. And I'm just cooking it directly in the bubbling sauce. At first they're kind of separate. And then as you sort of toss it around, you can see the sauce start to stick to it. And that is the, the starches on the outside of the pasta starting to gelatinize. And then you can also see the sauce itself start to thicken up. But the last thing that's going to take is my sour cream. So a nice glug of sour cream. Be pretty generous with it. Turn the heat down a little because I don't want my sour cream to boil. Although there's enough starch and enough gelatin in the sauce now that it should stabilize pretty well. And I'm going to toss in my handful of parsley. I can see the sauce is starting to leave traces and I'm going to slice my beef. I'm going to put the beef right on top and I am going to give just a little bit of some uh, Malden salt on top just to give it a little crunch and you know, a little shot of pepper. And that is beef stroganoff. <laughs> And it was very tasty. So we, we mentioned it a little bit earlier, you know, stroganoff originally, it wasn't a, a whole steak. They just sliced up the strips of filet and they poached it in the sauce. And this isn't something that's very common anymore, you know, just poaching meat as opposed to putting a crust on it. Right. But you were saying that you have done whole poached tenderloin roasts. Yes. Yeah. So what, what, what was the process for that? Uh, basically a big pot. Full of herbs. There's a lot of black pepper and some bay leaves, you know, garlic. I mean, and, and pretty heavily seasoned, uh, nicely trimmed tenderloin. Drop it in for about 30 minutes. Huh. Pull it out. And then what do you do? Sliced do you, it thinly and served it, you know. Do you, were you uh, serving it warm or cold? Yeah, warm. Huh. Yeah. And, and uh, it was just seasoned water or were you doing it in stock? Uh, I mean, basically, it's so seasoned, you might could call it stock. You oh, know, really? But there wasn't any other, like, bones or anything in there, so it was just yeah, mostly, yeah. you know, herbs. So what you, would you serve it with? Did you slice it real thin and serve it, or did you serve it as, like, a big chunk? Slice it thin, served it. It was, of course, in a wine dish we were doing. Oh, okay. wine dinner. I don't even remember what the sides were, actually. Oh, yeah. Be, uh, well, so it kind of sounds like almost... Sliced thin like that, it almost sounds like a slightly cooked carpaccio. Kind of, yeah, and it still is nice uh, because uh, you know it wasn't dried out at all. Yeah, you know it, it was still was probably really, pretty really rosy soft. pink in the middle. Yeah, too. very much. 
Yeah, so like a barely cooked carpaccio. That's kind of interesting because carpaccio is typically that's made with fillet. Yeah, ordinarily. Well, yeah, you know. So is tartare. And you pound it out a little bit too, which is oh you know, right, the one yeah, difference. Yeah. That, you know, it doesn't didn't get pounded out at all. So it's, you know, it was the same size pieces. Yeah, yeah, just like little right. medallions. Yeah, yeah. Well, tartare's um, kind of such a great dish, but you don't find it very often. And no. I, th- I think in a restaurant it might be uh, kind of tricky to do when you start dealing with ground beef. You know, you got to make sure yeah. it's fresh. It's well, you plant. know, and the other thing about tartare too is really to be good, you can't. It can't just be ground. You know, you pretty right, much it'd be have very to. Chunky. All the really, all the really fancy joints that that serve it that I know that are really well known for it. They all say they do it to order and they cut it by hand with yeah. a knife. Yeah. You know, because otherwise yeah, you just don't get the right texture. It. Yeah. It, it always gets a little mushy, you know, no matter how, no matter how good your grinder is, no matter how cold the beef is, when you run it through a grinder, it's always going to be a little soft. Yeah. Almost, yeah. That pate texture almost. Yeah. Yeah. And so tartare, it really needs, it needs that little bit of chew, you know, it's not hard to do, but if you're going to do it to order, like you've got to have a guy that pretty much that's all he does. Tartar man. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do? I'm the tartar man at Chez Louis. I don't know what that's served with like capers and uh tartar is usually yeah, it's bound with mayonnaise and there's always an egg yolk. Yeah, raw egg yolk. Um, and usually there will be some capers involved. There's always capers on carpaccio. And most things are served on the side. Yeah, and then you mix it mix it I together. You know, I think most of most places will sort of bind everything with just a little pinch of like mayonnaise, but then you know, they yeah. usually serve the egg yolk on top of it. And then give you all the other stuff so you can mix it all up and and uh, and eat it to your taste. There's usually like Worcestershire sauce involved. Yeah, and it's funny because like nowadays we think of it as like this classic. This the only place you ever see it really is in like French bistros, but in the 19th century it was called uh, steak a la American because they got it from, <laughs> <laughs> apparently they got it from from the U.S. Oh wow! And originally steak tart there was steak a la American which was what we know today as tartare and steak tartare was chopped raw beef with tartar sauce. Okay. <laughs> and that's why it was tartare. Yeah. Right? And that's why I was wondering what the connection was. Well, yeah, supposedly some people say, Oh, it's because the, the Tatar people in central Asia were great lovers of raw meat or whatever. But that <laughs> seems to be like one of the sort of fancy, you know, things that people make up kind of like the, <laughs> well, there are there are capers too in tartar. Yeah, the original tartar sauce. Yeah, that's true. Capers and the dill flavor comes. That from is true. It is dill a little. It is a little pickles. different. But I've always been a little suspect, suspicious of not just that, but it. It this goes with the the fillet thing too, because I've always wondered like. Did steelworkers in Pittsburgh really cook steaks on their furnaces, and that's where we got Pittsburgh steak? Or was that just ah. like, or was that just like some you know very clever waiter who was, <laughs> <laughs> or just the style around Pittsburgh at the time? They had some really big hot grills. That's that's a tricky one to do. I mean, you got to have a you got to have some heat. Yeah, you pretty much need a salamander for that one. Yeah. And for those of you, who, for those of you who are just wondering why I said that you would need some sort of amphibian to cook a steak, <laughs> a salamander is oh, a yeah. is a restaurant broiler, and they're screaming hot, like hundreds yeah. of thousands of BTUs. They're just ridiculous. They'll cook anything in like no time at uh, all. I wish I had one. Yeah, <laughs> I wish I had one too. If I ever if I ever become incredibly wealthy, I'm going to put a salamander in my house. Nice. <laughs> Quick nachos anytime. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wouldn't even have to, you know, I'm so, I'm so wealthy that I don't care about the gas usage. So I just leave it on it's all on, the time. You know, I don't even worry about, I don't have a heater. I just have a salamander going. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are starting to get close to the end of this show. I would like to thank my guest, John Brown, very much for coming on. 
Thank you. It was great. Yeah, it's been a blast. I love talking talking meat with you since you're... <laughs> That's what I do. That is what you do. <laughs> and uh, my name is Jeff Lockwood, and I would like to say thank you all very much for joining us for this week's version of Check the Pantry. Check the Pantry is a production of KBBI AM 890 in Homer, Alaska. It's hosted by Jeff Lockwood and was engineered today by Kathleen Gustafson. The theme music is String Quartet Opus 10, Movement 2 by Claude Debussy, performed by Quator Ebain. This is the second episode of the winter 2019 season of Check the Pantry. Your financial donation as a listener makes this and other KBBI programs possible. Visit the KBBI public radio website at kbbi.org support to help produce programs like this. Thank you.